BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
Hi, hello there, and welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. I was going to come up with something quippy there, but this bit isn't scripted for once uh, because it's necessary uh, reasons to be explained. (laughs) So anyway, I'm me. uh, I'm Liv, and I'm the host of this show. And I'm definitely not losing my mind on this here sixth anniversary part two episode. Just like on Tuesday's episode, I am back with answering more of your incredible questions, reading more of your beautiful comments, trying not to cry when they are particularly meaningful, uh, and just generally going to play you some of your favorite and my favorite moments from past conversation episodes and reading episodes, because why in Tartarus not? This is me trying to replace Christian words in my vocabulary with Greek mythological, and sometimes they just don't work, you know? You know? Let me tell you a quick saga before we dive right into this episode, because I have had a week. If you listened to Tuesday's episode, you learned that after six years recording this podcast, three of which have been uh, with it as my full-time job... Um, I am ostensibly a professional podcaster. And yet last week, I managed to record an hour's worth of partially scripted, partially improvised podcast without having used the correct microphone. Now, in my defense, this was a really bizarre thing that it wasn't even set up with the right microphone, uh, because in any case, I did that. uh, And then I fixed it. You know, I only used part of the bad recordings for you guys on Tuesday, and then I re-recorded most of it. And then, well, over the weekend, um, my computer that I record and edit all of my episodes on just shut off in the middle of me using it and then and then wouldn't turn back on. After a day of playing with it and trying to figure it out, it seems like it just only sometimes is willing to be on uh, and functioning. So right now I'm recording on a computer that I am fully expecting could shut down at any moment. I refuse to touch it. Uh, And we're just going to hope for the best because I just feel like I feel like six years is giving us something to work off of. You know, I don't know what that is. And I hope that it cools down um, because also side note, the day before this happened, my PlayStation just decided to die. So we're doing great over here. Can't play Assassin's Creed. Can't do anything. Um, in any case, I am here with this episode and it's going to be fun. And I'm hopefully not going to have to record it multiple times due to computers. And you know what? I feel like I had kind of over these past few years kind of strayed away from the more personal aspects um, with my scripts and everything. And so clearly I'm just coming right back to it with this one. So thanks for listening. <laughs> Let's dive right into this part two of the six-year anniversary episode because I'm so touched by all the comments and questions that you guys asked me, and I'm really excited to share some fun clips of conversation episodes and reading episodes that, you know, I'm particularly proud of. I'm proud of all of them, let's be perfectly honest, and I love every single one of my guests, Uh, but I'm just going to play you some random things amidst answering your incredible questions and reading your incredible comments. Thank you. I love you all. Me- 
medicine and magic, underworld gods, Plato and Herodotus being weird guys. An anniversary special. All right, our first question today comes from Nix, and they say, Hi Liv, love your podcast. My question is, was there a distinguishable difference between regular love, which was put on you by the gods, Eros is Eros, usually, and a love spell, like the love for Jason put on Medea by Aphrodite? It seems to me that either was completely out of control of the poor mortal. Anyway, I find it interesting, so I was wondering if you knew anything about it. So this is a really fun question, and the answer is one of those things that I talk about a lot, which is just that, like, it's both. It's neither. It's everything. It's mythology. (laughs) Uh, And that is simply because, so for one, just the context is that, so for instance, the love spell that you're referencing specifically uh, from the story of Jason and Medea, that is found in the Argonautica by Apollonius of Rhodes. And Apollonius uh, is from the Hellenistic period. So he's quite late in the grand scheme of Greek mythology. Um, Let's say 500 or so years after Homer, maybe 400 after Hesiod-ish. These are all generalizations because of the oral tradition and all that. Um, But he's quite late. And so what I think is happening here is that it's really just a storytelling device. um, Because also unlike most of the the earlier mythology that we have outside of the plays, of course, um, Apollonius is writing an epic. And we know, you know, he he is a specific person that we know wrote this down. He was writing it to tell his version of the story. It's a much more deliberate act. And therefore, we know that he was working off of intentional narrative devices, narrative decisions in a way that can't be said for Hesiod, for Homer, for the fragmentary mythology that we otherwise have, because those were based on oral traditions. And so, you know, they changed, they varied. We have, there were different versions. There were different people telling the stories in different regions and all of these different things that just lead to them being like two really distinctly different, you know, sources Um, And I think that that the idea of like the gods controlling love and how they do it just is then shown really differently between them because of all of these these specific things that make them, you know, so different from each other. Now, all of that said, I also think it's just a matter of it being mythology and sometimes it fits stories to have it be, you know, a god's arrow or just like a god's intervention. And sometimes you want it to be a spell and, you know. There's just so many different things that contributed to it, but also the overall idea that like, you know, across the Greek world, everyone would have believed really different things about the gods, what they could and could not do, what they did and did not do, you know, why all these different things, like everything was just so different and spread out and like nothing was uniform and nothing was decided. So it's just kind of a matter of like, such as mythology. It's the same, the same answer as why we, we can't track a lot of things chronologically in the myths or with the heroes or all those different things. It's just the nature of the reasons why these stories exist in the first place and then also how and why they were passed down to us. I love talking about that stuff because that's why I love mythology. This reminder that like, for all we hear these stories as like, narrative stories, you know, like we imagine today, they weren't anything like what we have today. And because of that, we can't always understand the reasons behind 
you know, the actions and behaviors of certain gods and people. And like, for me, that's the fun of it. So yeah, I mean, that was a really great question. I'm glad I got to answer it because it's just a thrill for me to ramble on about that kind of stuff. Next up is Danny, who says, Hey Liv, first I just wanted to say I'm a huge fan of you and your show. I've always identified myself as a feminist, but listening to your show over the last few years has helped me expand my own understanding of this and definitely grow as a person. You're awesome. I did my BA in ancient history in Australia and remember learning about a set of characteristics that made up a Greek hero, i.e. he has an unusual birth or conception, has a divine parent, goes on a quest, etc. I was wondering what your thoughts on all those characteristics and whether in the ancient Greek storytelling they would have actively incorporated those elements into their myths. Another great question. Really, really fascinating ways to start off of this episode. Um, so now personally, and this is like entirely my own preference, I hate that kind of stuff. I know it's ironic because I literally have an English degree and it's like that is how you get an English degree is like breaking down everything like that. But I, I don't know. I don't really like like to think about them in such a structured and uniform way. And I don't really think this is, you know, an answer to the rest of your question. I don't really think the ancient Greeks did either when they were developing the stories. Like maybe, you know, in the example of uh, Apollonius later, maybe he was because he's like a later um, author who's like making a really intentional piece of art in a way that the earlier stories that we have aren't. Um, I don't really think that they thought about it that much. That said too, like the word hero is obviously found in Greek mythology, but like, I don't know. I think that we, even just the way we describe them now um, is so much more uniformly determined. Like these are the heroes. And I don't think that it was quite so cut and dry in the ancient Greek world. They more saw them as the people in the characters and the archetypes rather than needing to put them in this category of quote unquote hero, you know? So, and I mean, like, I know when you're doing a BA specifically, like, it's really, really base level, surface level stuff. Like, that's all I have, too. And the the difference in what I've learned through this podcast versus through my BA is, like, fucking bananas. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, like, learning it like that is just, like, a, a, a good way to, like, get a grounding in things. But when you're really deep in the ancient sources and really trying to understand the ancient sources, I think it sort of falls away and just becomes sort of just like a side piece. It's just sort of, you know, you can you can do these things. You can break down the characters in this way. But personally, I'm just disinterested in that. I like them for the the character and and the why behind it, the, the, the reasons why they were developed in the ways that they were, rather than, you know, distinctly categorizing them into these, these, I don't know, categories. <laughs> All right. That was really great. Thank you. Um, oh, and she had another question. I also read a theory in one of my textbooks that the idea of the gods being related was actually to demonstrate their equality of power slash status, not necessarily that they were related related. Or do you think this is just wishful thinking trying to make something gross? Not so. Um, I think that's another great question, too. And I think that uh, I think that like, OK, I, I don't want this to sound like I am like, you know, not giving you all the answers, but like, I think it's another, it's kind of like the, the question at the top there. It's just irrelevant. Um, you know, like, yes, probably they weren't developing these, these ideas and, and concepts with the distinct notion that like, they are sister and brother and they are fucking like, I think it is more just these ideas of, of power, like you said, and status and, and, um, like a, a hierarchy, uh, the, it's more about them being like generationally important 
than it is about them being, you know, biologically related. I think that it just kind of didn't matter. The biology of it was sort of just a, an extra piece. It didn't it didn't really come into the stories and I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing to think about, but I also think it's one of those things that's like so unanswerable. You know, like I don't know, maybe they were just like really into that. Who knows, right? But I do think ultimately that it yes, is probably more about power and a hierarchy of of divinities than it was about like an actual biological relationship. All right, next up, we have a message from Pinup. Um, who sent me a really long and beautiful message. I just want to say that I did read it, but I'm just going to read your question here. Was there ever a time you felt like people didn't appreciate the fabulousness of the ancient Greek world and wanted to give up on the podcast? Um, no, no. There were like, so I think I've said this before on the show, but like in the summer of 2020, um, I was like a, a walking disaster. I mean, like so many were, you know, it was the, the, beginning of the pandemic we were all trying to figure out this new life and I personally was like keeping up a podcast I'd started doing it twice a week and that had like really helped my download so I couldn't bring myself to stop I got the deal to write the book but they gave me a month to write it and while all of that was happening uh, my day job was managing a clothing store and they called us back to to reopen or called me back to single-handedly reopen a clothing store in a mall in the pandemic and it corresponded with I had to write a book in a month and keep up with two episodes of the podcast a week. And that was before I signed on um, with with when I used to be with ACAST. And they were the ones who first ever like paid me enough that I could quit my job. So it was before that. And like, honestly, if ACAST hadn't come around at that time and offered me money that was enough for me to quit my job, I probably would have just fully burnt out and and had to end the podcast because it was just becoming too much. But it wasn't about the listeners. It was about my own ability to do it. Every once in a while, you know, I get a little, not a little jaded, but just like it's difficult. And podcasts are so kind of weird because like I both do and do not hear from listeners that they like it and that like what I'm doing is actually reaching people. Like objectively, I know it. But sometimes it just kind of like falls away and I just feel like I'm I'm doing this thing. I don't know. It's really it's really interesting. But I've the, honestly like when I do Q&As and stuff, it really helps me because I get these incredible messages from you people. And like you all remind me the reasons why I'm doing this. Right. And I get this kind of like really distinct reminder of why it matters and why I love it and, and who the people are who are listening and loving it alongside me. And that makes an enormous difference to me. Uh, it just like it just helps a fuck ton. So thank you all, you know, and and like just a general note, like if you listen to an episode and you really love it, um, you can tell me and I will always be really happy to hear that. Like I probably won't answer all the time because um, correspondence stresses me out. Um, I call it ADHD and anxiety, but I will read it. And it will make me happy, like really happy, you know, especially if you comment on, you know, one of the little videos and stuff that I post on Instagram for each new episode. If you tell me that you listened and you loved it, like, honestly, that makes my day all the time. Any any kind of reaching out of listeners makes my fucking day. So feel free. But that's all to say, while I have had points where I contemplated giving up the podcast, it wasn't because people didn't love it, you know, which has also made it harder. And thankfully, it's why I never stopped. But 
you know, there's been moments, but it was more about the actual work and money involved rather than, you know, the actual, the the people who listened to me. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I think it's a fine time to play a clip, don't you? Now, in my last script, I had written down what clips I had, but now I can't touch my computer, and I fear it. So, it's going to be a surprise! Our next selection, How to Flirt at Sporting Events. And let not the contest of the noble steeds escape you. The roomy circus of the people has many advantages. There is no need there of fingers with which to talk over your secrets, nor must a hint be taken by you through nods. Be seated next to your mistress, there being no one to prevent it. Press your side to her side as close as ever you can, and conveniently enough because the partition compels you to sit close, even if she be unwilling, and because, by the custom of the place, the fair one must be touched by you. Here let occasion be sought by you for some friendly chat, and let the usual suspects lead to the first words. Take care and inquire with an air of anxiety whose horses those are, coming and without delay, whoever it is to whom she wishes well, to him do you also wish well. But when the thronged procession shall walk with the holy statues of ivory, do you applaud your mistress Venus with zealous hand? And as often happens, if perchance a a little dust should fall on the bosom of the fair, it must be brushed off with your fingers. And if there should be no dust, still... Brush off that nun. Let any excuse be a prelude to your attentions. If her mantle, hanging too low, shall be trailing on the earth, gather it up and carefully raise it from the dirty ground. At once, as the reward of your attention, the fair permitting it, her ankles will chance to be seen by your eyes. Look, too, behind. Who shall be sitting behind you, that he may not press her tender back with his knee against it? Trifles attract trifling minds. It is proven to the advantage of many a one to make a cushion with his ready hand. It has been of use, too, to waft a breeze with the graceful fan, and to place the hollow footstool beneath her delicate feet. Both the circus and the sand spread for its sad duties in the bustling forum will afford these overtures to a dawning passion. On that sand often has the son of Venus fought, and he who has come to be a spectator of wounds himself receives a wound. While he is talking and is touching her hand and is asking for the racing list and, having deposited the stake, is inquiring which has conquered wounded he sighs, and feels the flying dart, and himself becomes a portion of the spectacle so viewed. Well, that was from Ovid's Ars Amatoria, The Art of Love. I think it's usually translated as... And well, that was... um, God, I remember covering that last year around Valentine's Day. Because it's just one of Ovid's wildest work. Is he joking? Is it satirical? Is he serious? Is he far more misogynistic than we thought? Is he far less? What is happening? 
check out those episodes I did if you are curious, because what a wild and weird work of art that piece is. All right. Next up is a question from Diamante. I hope I pronounced that right. Thank you. She says, to start off, I want to say thank you, Liv and the team of Myths Baby. It's me and Michaela. We're making a good team. The podcast has been a constant for quite a long time. I mean, my bachelor's degree, a pandemic, a master's degree, and now a master's thesis. So yes, massive thanks. I think with all these years of independent research under your belt, my question would be, what are some of the lessons slash improvements you discovered after having worked on Myths Baby for six years? If there were any, are any steps or sources that you once incorporated into your work, but later with experience decided weren't so helpful? Basically, how do you think the last few years researching for Myths Baby have helped you become a better researcher or writer? Oh my God. Everything is better now. Everything. I am so much more, so much better at researching. I'm so much better at ancient sources and understanding them and picking them correctly and and like sharing them with you all. I no longer use secondary sources for the mythology unless I absolutely have to. Whereas at the beginning of the show, I was just, I went with what I had, right? And what I had was the basics of the internet, um, the the knowledge I had from my BA, but it was like five years old at the time and I, you know, had never been using it. And it, it, they don't teach you how to research ancient sources. They just teach you the basics because it's just, you know, surface level BA. And yeah, I really like, I look back and it's really entertaining. So, so a really good example is I used to use this book called Greek Myths. Um, it's by Robin Waterfield. And uh, I used it because I found it on sale at a bookstore and I, at the time, you know, was, was broke and writing this show and it was, it was cheap. And I was like, great, a book of Greek myths. And so I used it for a while. And now um, I look back and (laughs) so uh, there are moments in this book uh, that are fucking horrifying. Uh, It, he, (laughs) yeah. Um, I don't recommend this book, basically. Um, You know, I'm sorry to the author. He's an incredibly well-respected classicist, so I am not talking about him directly. But all of that said, um, there are moments in this book that are patriarchally horrifying. Like, the story of Medusa has all of these changes that make her monstrous and horrifying and scary and are completely, completely fabricated beyond, like, there's nothing in the sources. You know, it's got the whole notion of her, like, terrorizing the lands, like, really deserving this death, or or that, like, I'm pretty sure it says that she, it it uses some things from Ovid's version, and it, it really explicitly, I'm pretty sure, says that she, like, chose to sleep with Poseidon in Athena's temple. Oh, and it says that she, like, bragged that she was more beautiful than Athena which like tell me the source that says that and I will take all of this back but like pretty sure it doesn't exist and then also the um Pandora section was equally like the misogyny found in the Medusa and Pandora's sections of this book broke my brain um and now I guess that's a long way of saying uh yeah I am so much better at researching and and sharing those sources too like if you ever want to be doing this stuff on your own or learning more, I'm really, really detailed in my sources that are linked in the episode's descriptions. Um, and there's just so much online with the ancient sources and you can really learn a lot and it's just fucking fun. So yeah, I mean, gods am I better now. The the lessons I learned, I guess if I was to boil them down, is just like context and ancient sources, you know, but it's difficult to fully explain, but holy shit, am I better now? And that's what matters to me. <laughs> 
All right. And this next question is from Jennifer Lopez. And I'm just going to go right ahead and assume it's the Jennifer Lopez. Thanks, JLo. <laughs> she said, I'm gendering here and I apologize. It's part of the joke not meant to the person who wrote this. Hi, Liv. I've always wondered this. If Helen is a daughter of Zeus, why isn't she considered a goddess or half goddess? And I was really glad to get this question because I think it's something that is, it's one of those things that I think is um, our modern understanding is based both in, you know, general modern understandings of of things and logic, but also uh, classical reception and, and how movies and TV and, and, and books about myths kind of stray us away from how the ancients really were were playing with these stories and these characters. And so that is all to say that it is just a matter of like, I mean, so there are a shit ton of characters in mythology that are the children of gods and are have no godly distinctions at all. Uh, Helen is a good example. I mean, that said, there is, you know, there is stories of Helen where after she has died, she does get to like kind of live as a goddess. She lives on the island of the blessed in one source and she marries Achilles. It's very odd and interesting. Um, and so, you know, there is some kind of deification after her death in a way, but it's not really explicit. It's not like Heracles or anything, which his is like so obviously like he becomes a god. Um, and he is really the only child of a god and a mortal that gets that, that like really becomes it. We even have like a good example of how, you know, there was no kind of structure or logic in terms of divine parentage. A really good example is Harmonia, right? My favorite character in myth. Um, she's married to Cadmus. She's the daughter of Aphrodite and Ares. And she has absolutely no divinity mentioned in a single story about her. Nothing. And she lives amongst the mortals. She marries Cadmus. She, like, there's nothing that in the, the the surviving sources that defines her as being a goddess at all, other than just the word, she's a goddess. But there's nothing that, like, comes across. Um, and yet she's the daughter of two fucking Olympians, not just, like, you know, Zeus and some mortal. Um, and so it's just, like, the, the ultimate thing is that the stories were developed to tell the stories, not to have a distinct understanding of biology and who had what kind of divine parentage and what that meant like there's a lot of characters in the trojan war who have a divine parent but don't act like they you know are a half god or whatever aeneas is a great example he's the son of aphrodite but like he's just kind of there in in the iliad and um you know uh achilles is not a great example because thetis is like has a kind of hands-on relationship with him but at the same time like he's not a god he dies like anyone else right sarpedon uh in the iliad is a son of zeus oh god there are so many i'm never gonna be able to name them all but there are countless and they don't really ever have this kind of like divine notion so just sort of a reference like yeah he's the son of zeus but it was really common to have that um and then you get to the half of it all so i this is a great time for me to mention that like so the, the word demigod doesn't really exist in Greek mythology. Like, I think there's like maybe one or two references to it as a notion, but it is not like a, a broad concept. There is not like an official status of demigod or like, and it's not a term used often at all to describe any half mortal, half god, you know, like no one's out there writing ancient sources that have Heracles listed as a demigod. It's just not a thing. It just wasn't the point, right? It wasn't the point. The point, let's use Helen as the example because that's your that was your question. But like the point is that 
Helen is important because she is the daughter of Zeus and Leda. And she has kind of, it's like divine beauty. But the point isn't to have her be a half goddess. That It doesn't serve a purpose in the story and therefore it doesn't matter. It's just really about the intention of the stories and and what they were trying to do, what they explained, what they were linked to. You know, in the in the case of the the more famous heroes, Heracles, you know, um Perseus, I guess, the two sons of Zeus, um that mattered that they were the sons of Zeus because they were going to go on to do great things. But even between those two, they don't have any kind of like aligned you know, being half from Zeus gets you X. There's none of that because it wasn't the point. They just, they were the sons of Zeus and Helen was the daughter of Zeus to convey specialness and not really anything else. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. 
Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. All right, now I want to play a clip from one of everyone's favorite returning guests, Dr. Ellie Mackin Roberts. <sighs> Ellie joined me uh, last year to talk about Euripides' Alcestis, aka this like incredibly, ridiculously, beautifully entertaining tragic comedy that Euripides wrote it's it's his oldest surviving play it is weird and wacky and I love it so much and Ellie loved it so much and so she joined me to talk all about it and I want to share a little bit of that now Admetus does not get any redeeming moment like he is just continually ridiculous and he just like he doesn't concede anything he's just like you should have died for me and now I hate you because you didn't and his father has such well said and like reasonable arguments to be made like I think one line is like you didn't die for me why should I die for you or you wouldn't and so why should I or there's yeah. another that's like you like your life why wouldn't I like mine like it's just so explicitly like so no people shouldn't have to die for one another that that doesn't mean make me a bad father uh because i didn't want to like think about this rationally here i'm not a bad person and and literally like he just has all these deeply rational and rational and reasonable points and then adventist is like no no no, you should have died for me there is no other options i will not listen to anything you say or take any constructive criticisms on how i have handled the situation that's it like yeah and then you can really tell that fairies just gets completely like exasperated when he yeah and snaps and he kind of has that like are you just gonna like keep marrying people so you never have to die (laughs) like how is this gonna work for you and that kind of is the moment where I think you know because then after that is it after that or before that I think it's after that that Admetus then kind of goes on He's like, well, I don't have any parents. Alcestis is my parents now. Alcestis is my mother and my father. And goes on this like deeply weird cutting himself off from like everything. Uh, And yeah, just has a tantrum. Yeah. At one point he's like, you're not even my parents to begin with. Like, I bet you, you guys stole me from somebody and snuck me into the palace and pretended like I was my mother's son. Like he, he's just, it's so over the top. That's, I think how he starts the conversation. So he really starts it off with a bang of, yeah, uh, yeah really just 
really nice and reasonable guy. I know I keep saying this, but like he is an overprivileged, posh white man who went to Oxbridge even though he didn't deserve it. <laughs> you know, like he is that type of type of, or went to an Ivy even though he because his dad made a massive financial contribution to Harvard. You know, he is that person. Mm-hmm. And at every point, his tantrum, at every point of that conversation with his dad, you know, his increasing throwing his toys out the pram tantrum <laughs> just reinforces that. And you can see almost that like dawning realization where his dad is like, oh my God, I probably did this. <laughs> All right, next up we have one from Connor, and he says, I'm still a new listener, just started the Odyssey, but wanted to comment on how much I love your enthusiasm. Hearing that, my name is Liv and I fucking love this shit, is always a joy, and that energy makes me love continuing to listen even more. What's your favorite place in Greece with respect to ancient Greek mythology and favorite Greek tattoo you have or want? All right, I think I have to say that my favorite place in Greece... um, for this reason, for the mythology, is Samothrace. You know, I've rambled on and on and on about it, but it's just this really beautiful and, un like, just an unbelievable place. It's so kind of underrated and nobody really goes there, but it has this incredible temple complex and it's mythologically confusing. We don't really know anything, so I guess it's a bad example for mythological, but to me, it's just, like, unbelievable and kind of groundbreaking. But As a simpler answer and one that is considerably easier for people to actually see on their own, I will hype up Delos. Fuck. So Delos is the island. It's just this little island off of Mykonos. Um, And of course, it's, you know, where Apollo was born and it's uh, mythologically sacred to Apollo. But now it's just this sprawling archaeological site. There is nothing on the island except for archaeology. You have to go for just the site. And so you have to take a boat just for this site. It's unreal. It's unreal. And while Mykonos is ridiculous and so much more expensive than the rest of Greece, I can't even properly convey it to you. Um, Delos is worth it. But I will say, If you don't want to go to Mykonos, but you want to go to Delos, you can do day trips from some of the other islands, particularly Naxos and Paros, both of which are great islands to visit that are way cheaper than Mykonos. And I would argue even more fun unless your purpose is to just go and be Instagram famous and party and then Mykonos is your jam. But if not, go to Naxos or Paros and take a day trip up to Delos because, oh my gosh. And tattoo, um... I have a lot of mythological tattoos at this point. I will say my favorite is my Medusa tattoo because the artist who did her is just um, amazing and she's fucking beautiful. But I also, the artist, I have like a mythological kind of arm piece uh, that's like in progress. And the artist who did that too is also incredible and she's done amazing work. And I don't know. Um, Yeah, they're all so fun. Tattoos are great. They're dangerously good. All right, and to to bring it down a little bit, um, so I I I basically fucked up my copying and pasting of these questions on Tuesday's episode, and I read a question by Tommy, um, and they had also in- included uh, a really nice message that I meant to read, but I 
cut it and put it here instead and remove their name. I had to go searching for it. It was a whole thing. Um, and I just want to read it because it, it means a lot to me. And again, this is a moment where I'm just going to try not to cry. Mainly, though, I want to say thanks. I found your podcast during the pandemic where I was going through a really rough bout of depression, both related and unrelated to COVID. I didn't enjoy much of anything and could barely leave bed. I found your podcast one day as I made a drive across my state. It was the first time doing a long distance drive since I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. I had a panic attack driving and your podcast was what grounded me. Later, when I was back at home and didn't want to brush my teeth or shower or make food, I would put on your podcast as a way to get just a bit of dopamine so I could get these things done. I felt like I was growing with you and the podcast. That as you got better, despite the warning I did start at the beginning, I relearned how to take care of myself. It's truly been a joy binging your show for the last two years. And thank you for doing what you do and being the ally that you are. Thank you a lot. Um... Like I said on Tuesday, I go back and forth with reading these because they feel really just like they're self-congratulatory, but I recognize that they're not and they are at the same time. And anyway, thank you guys for sharing stuff like that with me. Like, it makes it really worth it, you know? Like, it really emphasizes like what I was talking about earlier with the the few times when I have even contemplated stopping this. Like, these are the things that that really help me and, and like just couldn't possibly make me happier. Um. You should always feel free to share that stuff with me because nothing like it's like life changing on my part. All right. And we're going to pick it right back up again with a question that I am. I'm so glad that Francesca asked me about this. And I just want to say that like this is particularly relevant um, when we get to the question. But I when I managed the clothing store, um, it's called Below the Belt, by the way, since I don't work there anymore and I can say it. Um, I worked with a lovely, lovely young woman named Francesca as well. Um, and she was also a big One Direction fan because the question from this Francesca is, are you a One Direction fan? In your early episodes, you often say truly, madly, deeply, which is a One Direction song. I don't know if it's just a coincidence or if you do it on purpose. Anyway, I love your podcast. I am so glad you asked that because this is... I think I have to say that it is my official favorite anecdote that has ever come out of this podcast, okay? I tell it to everyone, mostly millennials, and here's why. I, in those early episodes of the podcast, yes, I was intentionally, intentionally using the phrase truly, madly, deeply. And yes, that phrase was intentionally referencing a song. However, however, <laughs> there is a song by the 90s rock band Savage Garden that is called Truly Madly Deeply. And as a woman who is 35, as of this episode, um, <laughs> I was 100% referencing the 90s song Truly Madly Deeply. Because I want to stand with you on a mountain and I want to bathe with you in the sea and I want to lay like this forever until the sky falls down on me. Um, anyway, you should all go Google Savage Gardens truly madly deeply. This makes me so happy. <laughs> truly. So I didn't I had no idea that there was a One Direction song called that because no I was too old for One Direction so I unless it played on the radio I never knew it I can't name a single song um and so but last year I ran a poll 
with my listeners um and i was like getting merch ideas and stuff clearly nothing happened with that but and somebody told me that their favorite phrase from the show is truly madly deeply because they're a one direction fan and i was like holy shit and i googled it and i learned and it's just my favorite thing in the entire world that i spent all of this time like subtly referencing a 90s song that one specific generation i think cares about and that is mine and then little did i know i was connecting with all these one direction fans and it just made me so happy like truly so happy so thank you i love all i love that that became a thing like truly nothing else makes me happier um but all of that to say is unfortunately no i am not a one direction fan however i fucking love harry styles and Hey, am I going to, let's see if I'm going to tell tens of thousands of people this. Um, Okay, I'm just going to do it. So last year, you all know you get your Spotify wrapped, right? You all share them with me when I'm your podcast and it makes me so fucking happy. I love, 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 love Spotify wrapped seasons. Well, last year I got my Spotify wrapped and I don't listen to podcasts on there. I use Apple podcasts. Um, So mine was just music and... (laughs) So last year I put on Harry Styles a lot as like background music and like while I was writing, while I was working on the show, while I was reading books, it was just kind of on a lot and it was on so much and only beginning from, uh, I think it was June, it was on so much in my ears that I, in my Spotify wrapped, was not in the top 1% of Harry Styles listeners around the world. Not the top 0.1%. No, 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 no. I was in the top 0.01% of Harry Styles listeners last year. And that is a lot. Let's play a clip of Lucian's true history, shall we? Gods, that reading was one of the most entertaining things I have ever done. It's the epic where there is a war on the moon against the moon people and the sun people. And I think there's bugs involved. And then, you know, there's a war inside of a whale. And then there's a travel to the underworld and a lot of Herodotus shade. Ah, good times. Then we prepared for our passage and feasted with them at the usual hour, and the next morrow I went to Homer, entreating him to do so much as make an epigram of two verses for me, which he did, and I erected a pillar of barrel stone near unto the haven and engraved them upon it. The epigram was this, Lucian the gods beloved did once attain to see all this and then go home again. After that day's tarrying we put to sea, brought onward on our way by the heroes, where Odysseus, closely coming to me that Penelope might not see him, conveyed a letter into my hand to deliver to Calypso in the island of Ogygia. Radamanthus also sent Nopleus, the ferryman, along with us, that if it were our fortune to put into those islands, no man should lay hands upon us because we were bent upon with other employments. No sooner had we passed beyond the smell of that sweet odour 
but we felt a horrible, filthy stink, like pitch and brimstone burning, carrying an intolerable scent as if men were broiling upon burning coals. The air was dark and muddy, from which distilled a pitchy kind of dew. We heard also the lash of the whips and the roaring of the tormented, yet went we not to visit all the islands, but that wherein we landed was of this form. It was wholly compassed about with steep, sharp, and craggy rocks, without either wood or water, yet we made a shift to scramble up among the cliffs, and so went forwards in a way quite overgrown with briars and thorns through a most villainous, ghastly country, and coming at last to the prison and place of torment, we wondered to see the nature and quality of the soil, which brought forth no other flowers but swords and daggers, and round about it ran certain rivers, the first of dirt, the second of blood, and the innermost of burning fire, which were very broad and unpassable, floating like water, and working like the waves of the sea, full of sundry fishes, some as big as firebrands, others of a less size, like coals of fire, and these they called lichnesgeis. There was but one narrow entrance to it, and Timon of Athens appointed to keep the door, yet we got in by the help of Nopolius, and saw them that were tormented, both kings and private persons, very many of which there were some that I knew, for there I saw Kinneras tied by private members and hanging up in the smoke, but the greatest torments of all are inflicted upon them that told any lies in their lifetime, and wrote untruly as Catesius the Canidian, Herodotus, and many other, which I, beholding, was put in great hopes that I should never have anything to do there, for I do not know that I ever spoke any untruth in my life. We therefore returned speedily to our ship, for we could endure the sight no longer, and taking our leaves of Nopolius, sent him back again. All right, I have a question now from Ellie, who says, Hi, Liv. First off, I want to say I love your content. I'm a very avid listener, and I'm so happy to have a strong woman giving me my myth fix. Anywho, I was wondering if you ever plan on doing a live reading or a book signing slash meet and greet thing again in Victoria. Much love, Ellie. Also, who's your favorite nymph? Well, I think my favorite nymph is Calypso because of the odyssey of it all, even though she is a problematic as fuck. Um, but I'm glad you asked about that because actually you prompted me to finally remember to reach out to the people at Indigo here in Victoria. And so I will be doing a book signing at the Indigo in the fine Mayfair Mall. That's sarcasm. Mayfair is ridiculous. Uh, I will be doing that on Saturday, August 25th. Nope. 26th. I will be doing that on Saturday, August 26th at 12 p.m. We'll do, I think it's 12 to 2. Um, and yeah, you can come have your existing books signed or you can come buy new ones and have me sign them. And yeah, I will announce it more on social media and things. But because you asked, there we are. So thank you. And next, we have one from Laurel, who says, I can't believe it's been six years. I found you at the end of your first, and I've been hooked ever since. I've loved following your journey and immediately got your books when they came out. Your passion for all things Greek and your authenticity makes for such an enjoyable podcast. 
I particularly enjoy the Atlantis and Sparta series you've done in the past couple of years. As a history nerd, I love the conversation episodes with the academics. I can't wait to listen to your next series. Love you so much, Liv. And I truly hope to read your novel about Cadmus and Harmonia someday. Well, we'll see about that last one. ADHD is a bitch. Uh, but otherwise, thank you so much for that message. And I will say that I recognize your name from the last six years. So thank you for being around this long. All right. I've got one from Autumn, but spelled with a Y. I love that. It's lovely. And they said, I've heard another theory about the story of Medusa, in which Athena actually turned her into a monstrous form to protect her. Additionally, from what I understand, her image was often used to depict safe houses for domestic or sexual abuse. I was wondering if you had heard anything about it or if the theory had any sort of validity. Maybe you've already covered this. I'm afraid I haven't made it too far into your episodes yet. This is a great question. I think I've talked about it in the past, but I'm really happy to do it again because not everyone listens to that. And it's a question that comes up super often. So this is like, I've seen it in a meme form, honestly, and it goes around uh, fairly often, this idea that Athena um, protected her. And while I understand the intention behind the theory, because it it does make it on the surface, I feel like it's it's nicer. But if you really break it down, I personally don't like the theory at all um, because it implies that protection has to harm. And that's just sad, you know, like in order for her to be protected, she had to be completely isolated from the entire world and not really be able to be around anyone and all of these different things. So I personally don't like it for that reason. In terms of any kind of validity of the theory, like it's really impossible to say because these are these are mythical creatures and people. Um, and, you know, we'll never really know the intention, not least because so often, you know, they're just these fragmentary sources or you know, authors that probably weren't real people or all these different things. So we'll just never know. But I personally don't. I don't like that theory. It bums me out. I don't think it's nice once you actually dig a little deeper. Now, as for the um, safe houses for domestic abuse, unfortunately, that is a misconception that also goes around the internet a lot. If you Google it, it will seem true. Um, it isn't, as far as I understand it, from speaking with historians and archaeologists who have talked about how it is, you know, it goes around as a as a fact, but it, it isn't really a fact. Um, sh- that said, she was an apotropaic device. Her head was. She was a protective form. You know, her vision was used as a protective kind of talisman, let's say. Um, so that's true. It just wasn't directed at women or domestic abuse survivors or victims um, because, uh, yeah, it, it, it wasn't. It was just like a broad protective device. So that's not to say that like some people might, you know, have have used it that way, but it wasn't like an actual symbol for that. It was a broader symbol of protection. Um, yeah. So it's it again, it's one of those things that sounds so lovely, but it is unfortunately not factual in terms of the ancient world itself. All right, next one, I have one from Reen or Ryan who says, what's the best experience you've had traveling and what's the worst? Thank you for all you do. Your podcast always makes my day better. Thank you. Um, so obviously I've done a lot of traveling to Greece lately. I recognize there is an intense amount of privilege that I have had in being able to do that. Um, I want to thank you all uh, for supporting the podcast and helping me get over there so many times. Um, I do recognize it is uh, not a normal uh, ability. Most have. All of that said, I honestly, like, I have such a good time traveling over there, especially when I'm alone. I've never really felt unsafe. I don't really go out at late or, like, party or anything, so maybe that helps. But I've never I've never felt unsafe. 
I've always had an amazing time. Everyone is always so lovely. I think I can name one, one person I've ever encountered in Greece who was mean. Um, honestly, like, I don't think I have any bad experiences. <sighs> Best is just all of it is the thing. Like, I really just can't say enough how nice it is not only to travel through Greece, um, but also just to travel there alone as somebody who likes being alone. Yeah, I really don't think I have anything bad to say at all. <laughs> All right, now let's play a little clip from this episode that I did with Antonia Aluko. Uh, Antonia is studying intersectionality alongside witches. I'm going to forget the exact details, but that's basically it. It was fascinating. And we talked about Medea and Circe in Ovid really specifically. And Antonia was just so much fun to talk to. So I want to remind you all of that episode. Go back and take a listen. And so if we look at witches using intersectional theory kind of like as their magic use being an extra layer onto their discrimination in the ancient world, then we get a very, very specific picture of this kind of overly extreme, very chaotic, very monstrous figure whose, you know, sexuality, age, gender um, and ethnicity all play a part in how she's perceived in the ancient world. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. 
kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. All right, I have one here from Thor. Uh, and I'm going to be paraphrasing this question. I mean, I've paraphrased a bunch of them, but this one I'm going to do kind of in the moment. So Thor says, hello, Liv. I have been listening to your show for about three to four years and I am in love with your podcast. As a person who loves Greek mythology, it is wonderful to see a person who is passionate about the subject as I am. I enjoy geeking out with you over your expertly sourced episodes and wonderful storytelling. Thank you. That makes me happy. Okay. I have a question regarding the offspring of certain deities. As I've broadened my knowledge of mythology, I have always found it interesting that some gods produce godly offspring while other encounters with different characters may result in mortal children. Um, and then they provide some examples here, which I'm not going to read. Um, there is most certainly not a definite answer to this question, but I would like to hear your thoughts on this. Is it due to the characters having different versions of who their parents are compared to other sources? Did the individuals who sourced these genealogies believe that there was an explicit reason for why this occurs? Or is their godly or mortal status of no importance at all compared to the legacies that are that these characters left behind? Um... So I realized while reading that that I basically example uh, I answered that earlier when I answered the question about Helen, but I wanted to read it anyway because I think it it opens up the question far beyond Helen in a way that a lot of people often are questioning for themselves. So just to kind of reiterate, um, there is no hard and fast rules or or definitions when it comes to having a divine parent. A lot of times when it comes to mortals, um, it, it's. I mean, like I said with Helen, it's really just a way to signify a kind of specialness, a kind of individuality, something that sets them apart from the other mortals. And then sometimes, you know, and say in the case of Heracles, it also signifies strength and abilities and all of this. So it's really on like a case by case basis of what the character um, needed for the story, for the plot, what have you, like it just is totally dependent on the story, the source, the character, the purpose behind it, the intention. Like, yeah, it's just sort of there's no hard and fast rules about Greek mythology and what happens in those stories. Like, at all. No rules, no canon, no defined anything. 
That's what makes it fun. It is also what makes it confusing if you're trying to put modern rules, storytelling, plot, narrative. If you're trying to put these things that we now consider to be sort of the norm, if you're trying to put them on Greek myth, can get baffling and annoying. But if you really remind yourself that these were not uh, developed as stories in the way that we think of stories now, they were not, you know, nobody sat down and thought out the plot of the Iliad. People thought out the plot of the Iliad, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't one person sitting down and being like, I'm going to tell this story in the way that I want. What's more likely is that, you know, it started off as one little bit of a story and then it expanded and then other characters were added and then other plots were added and then other, you know, narrative devices were added that, you know, we got the background on these characters a little bit, that we got more details about why they're doing what they're doing or what's happening or all of these different things would have been developing over so much time that like, yeah, there just wasn't ever a purpose for us to be like, when you have a divine parent, this is what results. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's about signifying something else within them. And what that something else was, was just completely dependent on the character, the purpose, the God, what have you. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. (laughs) It's a very interesting thing to think about and explain but also like because it is so sort of amorphous it's also difficult to explain all right next one next i've got one from kelda and she says hey Liv, love your podcast i was listening to your adonis episodes which was excellent by the way thank you and it struck me as very similar to persephone's abduction and to helen's abduction by theseus just wondered what you think about possible connections or if the reason adonis gets more agency than either of those women is because of his gender good old patriarchy am i right um Uh, That is a great question. And I agree. It's very similar to Persephone's abduction and to Helen's abduction. And while I think it would probably be silly to say that the fact that he's a man doesn't um, come into play, I think probably it's more due to sourcing. um, Because of... So I'm going to, of course, forget all the Adonis sourcing, even though I only covered it like a few weeks ago in my head. Uh, But... Adonis is very fragmentary and kind of missing things. And a lot of the stuff comes from later sources that are like sort of explaining things from an earlier time. And to me, that kind of inherently, it, it means that that the authors who are, are kind of coming up with this stuff are more like I was talking about earlier, like Apollonius of Rhodes, um, you know, the Argonautica guy, somebody who is setting out to write a story. Whereas, so using the example of Persephone, uh, her abduction myth, right, is is retold originally, and by originally, I mean, you know, its oldest surviving source is the Homeric hymn to Demeter. And that is from the archaic period, uh, I, I believe. I know some of them are sort of debated. But what that really means is just that it is considerably older. It is more of a cultural, a cultural story, but like a... a it's it's ideological right it's explaining something it's giving the background on gods like the the story of persephone's abduction serves a very different purpose than the story of adonis um and of course the story of adonis you know like we found out not only is it really ancient in terms of the greek mythology but it's coming from the east and so there are going to be a lot of things in that story that are as old as the homeric hymn to demeter but they don't survive what survives for us has been given a bit more of a modern notion. 
you know? Um, and so I think it's really a matter of, of what we have to look at. Now, the Helen one is more difficult for me to say. I don't remember what the source is for that. I think actually, I think it's something like what survives is, is, um, Pseudopolydorus probably, which is quite late. Uh, and the Helen one though is generally baffling because it is general, like most Theseus myths are, are Athenian propaganda because he was, he was developed quite late and then like slotted in to the older stories. Right. So like the purpose behind having Theseus abduct Helen is to not only provide a kind of explanation for Sparta versus Athens, uh, you know, and their rivalry, but it also is to sort of retcon uh, Theseus into Homeric characters and a Homeric timeline, right? The Athenians who are wanting Theseus to be their big hero guy, to to show off how important uh, and valid Athens is, they are slotting him into the the story that shaped Hellenic culture, right? The Iliad. They want him, they want a piece of the Iliad and Theseus can't be just put into the Iliad um, because it's existing. You know, it already existed by the time Theseus was being developed. And so what they had to do is slot him in around there. You know, it's why they made him cousins with Heracles. It's why they had him abduct Helen, fight the Dioscuri. Like all of these things are to sort of cement Theseus amongst the more famous and the more culturally relevant greek characters all of that said it's still wild that they were like we're gonna have him kidnap a child like i don't have an explanation for that it's so weird but all to say i do think it's more about sourcing and what survives and what the intentions were behind it i think it's more about that than it is about the patriarchy which i recognize is quite unique for me to say of course there is going to be something inherent in the fact that he is a man and and the way those values change. It's really similar to to the story of Zeus and Ganymede, right? Zeus abducted Ganymede. He's uh, Zeus's one really obvious male lover. Um, he was a child. And it also does not... It also gives us this idea that Ganymede wanted to be there. And I think that that was probably because they were just more concerned with the desires of men explicitly in that way so they like kind of made it seem more likely that they wanted to be there whereas women just kind of were property inherently already so they didn't really have to it wasn't so much that they were being i think uncaring towards the feelings of women but since women were inherently owned by their husbands it didn't matter whether they wanted to be there uh whereas men were supposed to be the ones who do you know the possessing and so they kind of had to make it seem like they wanted to be there, if that makes sense. These are theories on my part entirely. And, and a lot of it is based on the fact that we don't have a lot of sourcing on, on these particular stories or a lot of varied sourcing. Of course, we have a very detailed Homeric hymn to Demeter, but we don't have a lot beyond that. Um, and so it's just sort of a matter of, you know, working with what we have and trying to figure those things out. But again, those are all theories on my part. I don't want to say anything with, you know, definitively. All right, next one, I've got one from Lily, who says, Hi, Liv and team. Love the show. My question is more of an advice one. I am studying archaeology and have to write an essay on an archaeological site we study this unit, but I can't decide out of these two options. Mycenae or Paphos, which is on Cyprus. I was leaning towards Mycenae, but after your Adonis episode, I'm torn. I would love to hear your input. 
okay, I will say this is entirely based on my Adonis and then the Eastern Aphrodite episodes, but go with Paphos. Fuck, Paphos seems so interesting. I am now obsessed with Paphos. I have to go to Paphos. I want to learn more about Paphos. I think you should choose Paphos. (laughs) Thank you for asking. Uh, That was fun and very relevant. And, you know, now that I've said that, I think it's time for another clip. So why don't we go ahead and listen to a great moment in the conversation I had last year with Caitlin Boulding, who talked about Plato's Timaeus, which is, you know, the first mention we have of of Atlantis. But there was so much more to that dialogue of Plato that I didn't know. And also talking to Caitlin was just so much fun. And I feel like this is an underrated episode amongst my listeners. And so I want you all to revisit it. Here is a clip from that episode. You know, well, if Solon did really hear this, then these different yeah. things could be real. And I'm like, yeah, but you're misunderstanding. Like the whole point is that like, no, Solon didn't hear this because Plato has no connection to Solon. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. <laughs> like, you, you know who would love that? Plato. Plato. Oh my God. <laughs> this is this is Plato's whole game, right? Like, Yes. He's setting this up. And then, so we've got the festival context to these dialogues. And that's the setting. And they're having this conversation at a dinner, right? So you're at this cultural event that takes place over multiple days. It's a big deal. Everyone comes into town. And there's the side events, which are actually like probably more interesting, where you're having these conversations with Timaeus, who, you know, he's in town from southern Italy. He's reached the peak of all philosophy. Um, and Critias, who may or may not be like the tyrant. Okay. <laughs> the fact that Plato also puts this into the mouth of the same guy who is both his like uncle and maybe one of the 30 tyrants is wild. I have many thoughts about this, um, which I cannot substantiate in my <laughs> TBD. Read this chapter of the dissertation. Um, but then within this backstory, it's at another festival that Critias learns the story. And again, this is a fiction. All right. I've got a question here from Chloe. And she says, do you think archaeologists will find more of the stuff we don't have? Or have we pretty much found all we expect to? Is there the possibility of the, some of the lost stuff being out there somewhere? Oh, what a fun question. And now again, I will preface this with like, I am not an archaeologist nor a historian. So these is this is all guesswork on my part. But I would say that a safe guess is that we'll never know whether we're done knowing. <laughs> like we'll never know if there's nothing more to find. Obviously, there's a shit ton that's still lost, right? Um, the thing about texts, I will say texts are considerably uh, more difficult or less likely to be found because of the way texts are and are not preserved. They just don't last, right? Um, uh, You know, uh, papyrus, where a lot of things were written down, it lasts, but only in specific circumstances. It's why a lot of the fragments of Sappho that we have, we only have them because they were on papyri that was then being reused in mummification and therefore it lasted. Um, but a lot of the things that they wrote texts on just don't survive. They're, you know, you, it takes like these really sort of freak moments um, for them to survive. 
I don't think that that means there isn't anything to be found whatsoever. It's just that it is, um, I think it's just more difficult if my understanding is correct. In terms of everything else, I mean, they're finding stuff all of the time, right? All of the time they're finding these artifacts that open up new avenues that explain things. They're finding, um, you know, uh, mosaics and, and, you know, statues, all of these things. And, And those things all really do contribute to countless things, but they do contribute to mythology because a lot of the time, like, okay, so if you find a mosaic, you could actually find an alternate myth in a mosaic. And we might not have a text source for it, but by it inherently being in a mosaic, we know that it was at least a story that somebody knew, somebody thought up, right? So even without texts, we're still learning more all of the time with like everything that's found. It's fucking amazing. I love that I'm friends with archaeologists now because I feel like I get such better insight and just like just paying attention to that stuff. Like really they're finding stuff all of the time. It's pretty, it's pretty fucking incredible and exciting. All right, next I have one from Eleanor, who says, Are there any stories of Persephone that include her time out of the underworld? It always struck me as odd that she's only there for one third of each year, yet most stories involving her have her in the underworld. Uh, if, for example, you know, Orpheus and Theseus's friend's abduction. Um, love the podcast. Thank you. Uh, that's a great question. And I think it comes back to something I was talking about in Tuesday's episode, which is just that, at least in terms of what survives and what we know and and often I think what was probably being written down, uh, what we have is what was necessary, right? Again, this is all coming back to everything I've been talking about this whole episode about intention, the why behind these stories, why they were being developed. And when it comes to Persephone, for the most part, the why is aligned with the underworld because, you know, Demeter's handling the harvest. And while Persephone is the goddess of spring, she's just more important in the underworld. She is more important as the dread goddess, as as the queen of the underworld. If you if you go back to the stories of her that do exist in the underworld, she becomes pretty obviously like the more important one, which is amazing and so interesting. Um, and so I think that it's just that she sort of had more weight down there. The stories of her down there mattered more. Now, all of that said, the thing that Persephone is very famous for that is technically speaking probably not in the underworld is Eleusis, right? The Eleusinian mysteries uh, were the mystery cult out of Eleusis. It's just outside of Athens. And that is uh, completely devoted to Persephone, Demeter, and then often uh, Triptolemus, who is this kind of like the son of Demeter. He's associated with, uh, with them. I don't know enough about the Eleusinian mysteries. They're on my like to research list. Um, and, and so like, I, I can't say anything with definitive nature. And I don't think there's a lot of stories that revolve around Persephone and Eleusis, but she was, you know, the goddess of Eleusis and people were doing a lot of really, really important ritual stuff uh, when it comes to that location and the mysteries and her. And so she does have these connotations outside of the underworld, spring time generally, uh, you know, general growth of the earth, all of these things, but they don't align with stories. Because no one's necessarily needing a story about spring happening. It just happened. Flowers just grow. We don't need to talk about it kind of thing, you know? Whereas everyone wants stories of the underworld. People traveling down there, all the different catabasi. Is that plural for catabasis? I'm assuming. Um, it, you know, all these different things. There, there's just more reason to have stories of her down there. So it's not about her, you know, not being up on the upper land or them not thinking about her on the upper world, rather. I'm sure that they thought about her up there a lot. But there was no purpose to a story there. It all comes back to purpose and like what purpose these stories served. 
in a way that we will just never fully understand because it's just not how our society works. Um, but it, it, it is the reason behind mythology broadly, right? I fucking love it. All right. I have one from Addie here and she says, I absolutely love your podcast and have been listening for years. It was really thanks to your podcast that I decided to do a bachelor's degree in classical studies. I'm graduating this fall. For my question, I was wondering, other than witches, do you know of any Greek mythological creatures that are perceived differently to the Romans? Thank you so much and much love. For one, congratulations on graduating. It's so wild to me that people have done degrees, at least even in part by this show. It's so fucking cool. Yay. Um, But okay, your question. It's really interesting. The witches thing is fun because I don't know that it's necessarily something that's like talked about all that much. I just think it's fucking fascinating. Um, But I do think it, it just is. It's a cultural thing, right? It's like it's just the sort of gap in between Greek sourcing and Roman sourcing. But uh, I won't go into the witches. Uh, you guys can listen to past episodes where I've rambled on and on about that or talk to experts in it as well. But I mean, I think there's probably a lot uh, just because, again, of the the same kind of cultural disconnect. A lot of the stories that we have from Rome are just coming from considerably later. And therefore, oh, what a surprise. They had a really different purpose. They were serving a really different purpose. And so things change. The underworld is a very different place. I know. Um because it actually gets kind of described in a, in a way in the Aeneid in, in that like it, it it never really gets fully described in Greek mythology. It's just kind of like disparate notions and ideas and people and rivers and such. Um, but yeah, I can't really think of any other good examples. It's a fun question. Um, I'm glad I both read it and then I kind of wish I had something better to tell you all. But thank you for listening. Next, I have one from Marissa, and she says, I thought about this while falling asleep the other day and can't say I've ever heard someone ask it before. What would Athens have been named if Poseidon won the contest? Poseidons? I just need your opinion on this. I'm so curious. I think it would be Poseidonia. I think there was a Poseidonia. I feel like I'm pronouncing that as if it's a psi letter. Poseidonia. Um... Yeah, I think I think that's what it would be, even though that sounds like modern, though. I'm trying to think of, like, places that end in O-N. I don't even know. It's interesting, though. I like that question. But I think that today we would have said Poseidonia. Poseidonia. I'm pronouncing it like a Psy. I'm keeping all of this in. You guys can hear how much I've just gotten inundated with the Greek language without actually learning enough of it. <laughs> Okay, I have one here from Mary who says, what's your all-time favorite Sappho fragment? Also, apologies apologies for nitpicking, but the correct pronunciation is Lesvos, not Lesbos. I'm a Greek and this is my absolute pet peeve. Fun fact, Lesvos is also the home of Uzo, so just a great island all around. Mary, I am so glad, so glad that you emailed this because it's something I am really excited to talk about and to share with people because I think that it's really important. Um, so number one, Sappho fragment, I'm just going to say I have a Sappho fragment tattooed. Um, actually it's going to lead me into this question or to this, the rest of my response, I think. So I have a Sappho fragment tattooed. Um, it is translated roughly as, uh, I would not dare touch the sky with two hands. It's kind of my little nod at those gods, you know, uh, I have it tattooed in the original Iolic Greek, uh, on my collarbone. And (laughs) every time I go to Greece, uh, multiple people stop me because it's really visible. It's right on my collarbone. And so somebody, everyone will stop me and just be like, that's Greek. And I'm like, yes, but, and they stare at it and I'm like, can you read it? And they're like, no. 
it's baffling. And I was like, I know. Because not only is it ancient Greek, but it's Aeolic Greek, which is what Sappho um uh, what Sappho spoke. Um, but also it makes it so they they like they used some different letters than Attic Greek. And so I think even when Greek people know ancient Greek, they know Attic, uh, because that was the more um broadly understood or or Homeric. And both of those are different from Aeolic. And so I've had people tell me it's wrong and I'm like, I'm not going to correct you. You're Greek. It's not my place to correct you. And that's fine. But in my head, I'm just like, I know it's because it's Iolic and they were really weird. <laughs> but all of that to say, so number one, I should have been pronouncing it Sapfo for this response because you're Greek. And I know that in modern Greek, actually in ancient Greek too, it's Sapfo. So now because of the spelling in Greek, um, because, you know, English, we have P and PH and, and PH makes a F sound in English, right? But because it's a P right next to it, we don't differentiate them. We say Sappho, like as if as if the, the PPH is just making that F sound. Now, reasonably, that shouldn't be the case, right? There's two Ps. So it is Sappho, particularly because in, in Greek, there is, there's two different letters, right? There's the P. It's not a P, but in English, it's a P. And a PH. The letter PH is a letter. And so it is Sappho. Anyway, you didn't ask about Sappho. I respect that you didn't, didn't correct that. You correct my Lesvos. And you're not wrong, but also you're a tiny bit wrong. But I'm not, I promise I'm not telling you you're wrong, wrong. So yes, it's Lesvos. No question. I know the island now is Lesvos. When I'm in Greece and talking about the island, when I'm talking about the modern island, all of that, I am always saying Lesvos. I want to make that clear. That said, I wasn't really that clear on it when I recorded that episode. But I am now. It's Lesvos. However, etymologically speaking, the B that I know in Greek, it beta is now veda, and therefore lesvos. Um, but in ancient Greek, the B was more of a B sound because the B beta is what gave Latin the B, which is what gave English the B. And then over, you know, the course of the 2000 years in between, modern Greek just ended up at some point, you know, the pronunciation changed and it is a V sound now. So all of that is to say that it is acceptable in in English, I will say, English people speaking ancient Greek will say lesbos um, or lesbos with a B sound. And that is because the the understood English pronunciation of ancient Greek, and by that I mean English people pronouncing ancient Greek, is to still hit the beta with a B sound. And in modern Greek, it's lesvos. But I know that in Greece, you pronounce it lesvos, even if you're talking ancient Greek. So I'm not saying that's wrong, but in, in terms of how, how English people are taught ancient Greek, we still say the B in ancient words. But again, I'm really glad you asked that because I think it's really, really interesting to look at how, you know, uh, how English people are taught ancient Greek and how they understand the pronunciation. I'm being really wishy-washy with how I phrase this because it's my understanding that that most academics who study, fully study ancient Greek, the language, will say that it it was a B sound back then and that it is a V sound now. But I don't know how Greek people learn it when they learn the ancient Greek, so I, and I don't want to... I don't want to say that anyone's wrong, um, but that is generally the accepted way of of reading those letters. But again, in modern Greek, 100% lesvos, no question lesvos. Absolutely. 
I hate ouzo though. I'm so sorry. I want to love it, but I fucking hate like licorice tasting anything. Ouzo is like the one Greek thing. I just, I can't do it. And it makes me so sad. <laughs> I want to go to Lesvos so bad though. For our last little clip break, I'm actually going to play two because I couldn't pick between them. So I'm playing them both. So these are two episodes I did last year. Again, they're two episodes that I think are pretty underrated in the grand scheme of my conversations. And so I want you all to listen to a couple little bits of them and, you know, maybe want to go back and have a listen to the whole episodes, either again or for the first time. The first is with Christy Vogler, who came on the show to talk about women and magic and medicine and like basically how women practicing medicine in the ancient world were treated like witches but men practicing it were doctors like that's a real generalization christy has so much to say fascinating fascinating episode so here's a clip of that and then it's going to be followed by one of my favorites uh, for the sheer volume of both fascination and silliness. I was joined by Kate Maniti, who I swear I'm just not Italian enough to pronounce your last name correctly. I'm sorry. Kate is so much fun. Um, and Kate came on to talk about Herodotus, but specifically Herodotus and in Egypt, because uh, Kate is an Egyptologist. And Herodotus said some really wild shit about Egypt, and it was just so much fun hearing all of that, we had a ball. Um, so please enjoy those two clips and take a listen maybe to the whole episodes of the conversations that I have shared with you today because they're just so much fun. I love my conversations. Oh, what a joy. Um, so for instance, at Pompeii, Rhea Berg has done some research of a, a pair of medical tools found in one of the houses there. And she's identified one that actually has a person's name written on the tool and it's mm. Sparata. And she makes an argument that this is a slave woman's name. And it starts to become the question of like, all right, if this is a slave woman, what is her relationship with the different patients she would have in the house? Like, what is her relationship with the domina and the paterfamilias? Like, how um, does she balance care for them versus care for slaves, especially like if slaves are coming to her for pharmacia that would allow them to have an abortion because they mm -hmm. don't want a child born into slavery. And how do you balance the expectations of both sides and navigate that? Yeah. Um, which to me is, is the most interesting questions you can ask about the lived realities that these women had um, that never get commented upon in the literature we see a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, I imagine nobody was writing that kind of thing down. And I, I think that's why I like the other reason I like this moment in the Aeneid so much is, you know, there's a big debate about going to Greek and Roman literature, predominantly written by wealthy, literate men of the time. And like, how much can you actually learn about women's lives from their point of view? And I, you know, arguably there's a lot here that it's, it's definitely a skewed view, but like that instance, like all of a sudden you think Virgil is thinking about his own mother taking care of him or these stories passed on. Um, if you go back to Homer, like who survived the fall of Troy, it was mostly women who were enslaved and mm -hmm. they're the ones who desperately want to tell the stories 
of what happened. And so how do those little glimmers of what women experienced actually make into the literature itself? And trying to pick those out is really exciting for me if I can find the physical evidence to go with it. Because Egypt, as as we know, was considered was held in very high regard from the Greeks because it was a very ancient civilization. They were revered as doctors, uh, priests, magicians, slightly orientalistic. I mean, I hear you know Edward Said rolling in his tomb, but you know uh, they were they were held in very in very high regard. So Herodotus is trying to um, to prove that like many things that the Greeks were doing well. Uh, are coming from Egypt, including the gods, mm. which is one big thing because sometimes when people read book two, he's using the Greek names of the, uh, like the Greek names of gods to indicate Egyptian gods. But that's not because he's trying to make it easier for his readers. He's actually saying these are the same gods. Interesting. Yeah, he's really, really trying. Um, and this, and with the gods, it's fantastic because, like, the the lengths to which he goes to try to fit several Greek gods onto, like, to map them onto Egyptian gods. Uh, sometimes it it doesn't quite work. No, their gods are so different. <laughs> yeah, he has he has a list of like, oh well, a moon is Zeus. And I'm like, okay, well, he's technically the head of the pantheon, but a moon is not a sky god. He's the hidden one. He's like the god. You're like, okay, well, that's that's fair. And like, a moon has the the ram horns, and Zeus sometimes has the ram horns. Okay, I can see that. Hathor and Aphrodite, that's okay. You know, fertility goddesses, sex, drugs, um, you know, happiness, music. Okay, that I can see that. Uh, then when you get to like, oh, um, Neith is Athena. It's like, yes, a, a warrior goddess. That's fair, but Neith is not a goddess of crafts. She's mm. really like a warrior. Mm, mm, questionable rise helios that's fine you know the sun god and everything else and then you get like oh isis is demeter no why <laughs> no 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 yeah i don't see that, <laughs> that <laughs> no that that's that doesn't that doesn't really work and like I, nothing against demeter like isis is the great of magic she's like the like one of the most powerful if not the most powerful uh egyptian goddess she knows the secret name of ra she can control him because she knows the secret name and Demeter is really not that. No, she's important, but in her own way of like earthy right. And way. the similarity is from is from the story of like Isis going around the earth to try and gather the pieces of her mm. husband, which fair Demeter does that, to, but just to find to find her daughter. Uh, but then he conveniently ignores the rest of the story and the rest of the rest of what Isis is, and the fact that her child is not a daughter but like a son. So uh, it's it's it's. It gets complicated. Even like Osiris and Dionysus, yes, um, Osiris gets killed and then he's kind of reborn, but he's still a mummy and he's still in the underworld. He's the ruler of the underworld. So by those standards, he should be Hades, but he's not. That is, yeah. See, see what I'm getting at? It's, it's yeah. complicated. Osiris <laughs> as Dionysus is like, I don't get that at all. Just Egypt is so interesting because they're, you can make other like obviously there's a lot of connections between gods across the Mediterranean, but it is harder to map them onto Egypt than it is even to map like Phoenician gods and like an Assyrian gods onto Greek. Like they fit better than the Egyptian ones do, at least in my limited knowledge. But you they know, do. like and yeah. And the other issue with Egypt is that like every province or city has its own very specific gods. There are mm. so 
many. There are so many. And sometimes he takes a very specific god from like a smaller province and makes it into, you know, a larger one. And that doesn't really work. Or he takes a goddess that is relatively important because she's one of the of the two ladies that signify uh, Egypt, like she's the, the goddess Wajet and she's a snake. And he says, oh yeah, she's Leto. And uh, why? How? Yeah. How did you get there? How did that, you know, how did that happen? And of course, he tries to fit in Greek mythological figures and heroes, but he has right. to kind of make them into gods. So he says, oh, clearly Epaphos, who is the, the son of Ayos, clearly the Apis bull, which was a relatively new cult in Egypt at the time. Uh, relatively new, like a millennium. Uh, so, you know, relatively new in Egyptian. <laughs> in Egyptian, yeah. No other culture. <laughs> yeah. In Egyptian times. Um, or he's trying to say that Heracles is clearly Egyptian and he's uh, the god Khonsu, but Khonsu is a, a lunar god. And yes, he's, he's a warrior, but he's mostly a lunar god and he's a god. He's not a hero. So he's, he's, trying, he's trying to make this, or uh, Perseus, um, he says, oh, he's the, probably the god of Akmin, uh, but the god Min is clearly not Perseus. Um, he, he, I, I was about to say something vulgar. Um, I'll say this <laughs> and then we'll cut it. He has something long and jutting and it's not a sword. Um, he's an Itifalic <laughs> god. <laughs> so, he's trying to make these things, but he, wa- he really wants to make this connection and to cram in the Homeric tradition into right. the chronology of mythology of Egypt. Okay, I have a really, really fucking lovely message to read here. This person did not provide their name. Um... This made me so happy. Okay. They say, a little weird. Sorry. I was just listening to your conversation episode from last year where you talked about sea creatures slash monsters in myth. And in it, you mentioned you were homeschooled. I was homeschooled as well. And I've always felt embarrassed by it because I feel like I missed out on normal kid experiences and common learning opportunities. Hearing you mention briefly about your experience helped me feel a little more comfortable with mine and has started me down the path of sitting with those embarrassment feelings rather than suppressing them. Listening to your podcast has helped me in so many different ways, but I think this has been the most impactful. Not a question really, but I wanted to thank you for the time and effort you put into the show. It's the highlight of my drive to work and I can't imagine not laughing, crying, cursing Theseus along with you and all the other listeners. This made me so happy. I was actually with my mom when it came into my email and I had to tell her about it because obviously she's the one who homeschooled me. Um, but yeah, so I was homeschooled until grade five, until I was 10. And I fucking love it. Uh, when I was a kid, though, I agree. Like, I really was embarrassed because I didn't go to school. and I didn't do those things. And, you know, when you're a kid, you just want to be normal. You want everything about your existence to be like everyone else's because when you're different, it feels bad. And then I think, you know, the more you get older and everything, like depending on the situation, some of those things change. And for me, I just became kind of excited that I was homeschooled. For me, I associate it with like for one, you know, and I think I've said this before when I've mentioned it, but like I was not like religious homeschooled, which I do think probably has like a different connotation if you're no longer religious, all those different things. Like I was just... My mom was educated in a way that she could have taught at a school and she just wanted to do it. Um, I was like hippie homeschooled, you know, very, you know, that, that kind of vibe. And for me, what it amounted to is that, like, I just don't remember having to learn anything before the age of 10. I don't remember having to sit down and do my schoolwork or do homework or sit in a classroom or anything 
and whatever my mom did worked great because I went into school and I was like reading at a like 14 year old's level and all these different things. And it instead for me, all I remember is a childhood. Um, and it also helped that we like had all these different things that I think made it really easy for my mom. There was a big community out here because everyone's a fucking hippie and, you know, we were able to do these big group things. So I still had a lot of interactions with other kids my age and it was kind of like school, but like never in a classroom and it was just great. So anyway, I don't know why I'm explaining all of that, but like, I fucking love that you hearing that made you feel better about yours because I don't think there's anything to be ashamed about. I don't know how old you are, but if you are younger, you know, the the older you get, the less school remotely matters, you know, and it just became, it becomes that like that bit about your life in the past. Like I, I was homeschooled. I finished 25 years ago because that's how math works and that's weird um and so for me now it's just like that thing in my life that made me weird and different but like doesn't matter anymore and it's just kind of fun and now I use it as like a silly anecdote when people are like yeah when I was in grade one or yeah when I was doing this and I'm like I don't remember or not even I don't remember I don't have that experience I don't have an experience before grade five which is kind of wild and I don't know I just that made me really happy and I hope that you continue feeling good about it because there's nothing to be embarrassed about it doesn't matter like being in school doesn't matter. School feels like it's the most important thing in the entire world when you're in it. And then once you're out of it, you're like, why the fuck did I stress out so much about what other people thought about me back then and what was weird or not weird or normal or not normal? Like it just falls away to an extent. I still care what people think, but not about school. Anyway, it, it made, it meant the world to me that you heard that and that it, helped you it's really cool and it's really fucking nice reminder about what this show does for people and again sometimes I have this like disconnect because I just sit in my apartment and I record this and like yes I have social media and stuff that connects me with you all but that's about it and like it's really nice to have this personal moment and have that shared with me and I just it makes me really happy thank you so much I'm really glad I helped and I hope you keep getting more and more comfy with being homeschooled it's just a fun anecdote for me now. I hope it becomes that for you too. Okay, I have one from Paris and they said, recently my coworkers and I play bar trivia where we had to guess popular survey answers to questions. The question asked, besides Heracles and the Olympians, who is the most famous Greek hero? My team correctly answered that the public would have would submit the top answers as Achilles, Odysseus, Jason, Perseus, and Theseus. However, one coworker was adamant that Icarus would be in the top five. I did my best to explain that he is from Greek myth, but not necessarily a hero, and he had no quest, nor did he slay any monsters, but my coworker wasn't satisfied. Is there a better explanation of heroism that I gave than I gave, which would explain why Icarus isn't a hero? Yes and no, your reasons were absolutely valid, and I, they would be what I would say. Um, Icarus is not a hero. That's all there is to it. Just because you're a man in Greek myth doesn't make you a hero. No. Even like, so the thing about the definitions you used, which again, I would have used too, they don't apply to like, say the heroes of the Trojan War. Like they're heroes, but they're heroes in a different way uh, because it's more like they're sort of pre-hero. They, they kind of come from this realm before, not chronologically before, but like, um, like in terms of the stories, but like historically before the Greek heroes. And so they just kind of fit in their own category because like, you know, Achilles doesn't kill a monster, right? Um, but 
<sighs> it's difficult because the answer is just simply that absolutely Icarus is not a hero. You can just play me saying this if you want. Um, but no, I mean, your reasons were very valid. Heroes, in, in order to be like a quote unquote hero, and I already talked earlier about how I don't think that the ancient Greeks would necessarily define it in the same way, nor do I think that they really thought too hard about what made a hero and like aligning their characters with those things. I don't think that they thought about it too much. I think it just kind of resulted this way. Um, but yeah, Icarus would have needed to have some kind of divine origin. Usually um, he would have need needed to defeat someone. He would have needed to do anything. Honestly, Icarus doesn't do anything. He just sucks at flying and then he's done. Yeah. It's hard to define why he's not a hero because because it's so obvious <laughs> that he's not a hero. <laughs> I hope that was helpful. I really enjoyed this question because it just made me go like, of course Icarus isn't a hero. How do I even define? Of course he's not. He, isn't, he does nothing. Like what I would want, I guess, instead is I want this person to give you one reason why he would be a hero. Like, I think actually that's the better way of handling it. Give me one reason why Icarus should be counted amongst Greek heroes. Just one. Because there isn't any. It's hard to de it's hard to deny something that's not there. Or, you know, disprove something that never existed. I don't know how to define that, but I think you get me. That was fun. All right. Now we have one from Becca, and she says, First, I just want to say I have been obsessively listening to your show since I discovered it a few years ago. I think I listened to your whole back catalog within a couple weeks and have eagerly awaited Tuesdays and Fridays since then. So thanks for providing me with such an interesting, informative, and hilarious way of wasting my time at work. I am curious to hear your thoughts on how much the ancient Greeks actually believed the stories that they were telling. They worshipped the gods, but did they think that the stories they heard were true, that the gods had actually done those things of myth? I also wonder about how much of the epic like the Iliad and the Odyssey that they would consider to have happened in real life. I know you said you're not familiar with the Christian Bible, but it's often accepted that many of the stories contained in it are not truthful, but meant to prove a point. So I was wondering if the same could apply to the ancient Greeks and their mythology. I know this is super long and I apologize, but I love to think about this stuff and I hope that you continue the podcast for many more years to come. No, that was a great question. It was not too long at all. Um, okay, so number one, and I'm just going to say this real quiet. Um, the Bible is just as much mythology as Greek mythology. They're not different things. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the Iliad, I'll start with the Iliad. I do think that particularly during a specific kind of time period, uh, maybe say, let's say the archaic period into the classical, I do believe, and again, this is an I do believe these are my theories. I do believe that the Trojan War was accepted as a cultural history. I don't know what people would say if you were to talk talking to them about it and you were like, okay, yes, the Trojan War happened, but like, did Aphrodite actually save Aeneas? Like, I don't know how much they would have uh, you know, explained that, like, yes, the gods were just as involved, like really hands-on involved. I don't know. Um, but I do think, yes, the Trojan War was cultural history in the same way that Homer is cultural history, right? They believed that Homer was real. Um, as for the mythology itself, I think sort of a 50-50. I think that, I don't know. I think that, again, I think that they weren't necessarily concerned with how real it was. They were concerned with 
what it represented, what it meant for them and their culture and their history and who they were as a as a people, as a defined kind of group. Like, yeah, I don't think it was just I don't think it was a huge concern. You know, they worshiped the gods. They believed in the gods. I don't know how much they were actually, you know, worried about Zeus coming down and and like assaulting somebody or smiting them or what have you. Like, I don't really know. I really wonder. And I wonder what kind of actual history there is about this. Like, I wonder if there is any better answer for this. I would love to hear it Um, because I think it just sort of wasn't a concern so much. The Odyssey is is trickier to say, too. Like, I don't know. I think that they thought Odysseus was real. I think that they believed he was the king of Ithaca. I think they believed he had trouble getting home. If you were to ask somebody, you know, really specifically if the Cyclops was real, if he really let the winds loose out of that bag and fucked himself over, like all these different kind of more magical things, I wonder what they would say. Um, So I think it's just sort of really unclear, really amorphous, really dependent upon the person, the time period, the questions you're asking, the things they're thinking about. Like, I just, yeah, I think it's not answerable. And I think that's what makes it interesting. So I'm really glad you asked. All right. This next one is from Evan. And she says, I absolutely love the podcast. I've been listening for years and currently always have it playing when I am working in the office. I run a D&D group in a world based around Greek mythology. I use your podcast and book pretty much as a Bible when I am planning sessions and things. It makes me it makes so much easier for everything being in one place. I just want to say thank you for creating my favorite podcast and that you are absolutely fantastic. Have you ever thought of traveling to the UK, specifically Scotland, but London works as well? We aren't really a large nation to attend cons or do an event. God, I would love to. I really think the problem with everything around my like doing of any kind of events is that I started doing events in November and then February. Like it was November of 2019 when I did my first event and then February of 2020 when I did my first big event. So needless to say, kind of just stopped right in its tracks. And it's kind of, I really haven't been presented with any opportunities since then. That said, I also haven't gone looking, but I would love to. I want to go to, I really want to go to London because I want to go to the British Museum and I want to see all the stuff they've stolen since I can't see it in Greece. But I would also love to see Edinburgh just purely for my own desire to see Scotland. So goals yes uh in anything in the near future not that i know of but it would be really fun i gotta make it happen i don't know figure it out all right next question second to last it's from liz who says hi Liv. big fan of all your work been listening for about a year now i was curious to know if you'd ever do a trip to greece with some of your podcast listeners well liz if you follow me on instagram you might have seen this already because this was inspired by you this was i have been asked a lot of times whether I would do a group trip to Greece a lot of times you just had really good timing on yours but in the past I've always kind of written it off because I am an incredibly introverted and anxious person socially socially anxious and the idea of having to host and entertain strangers gives me the kind of anxiety that might make a person implode but then I thought about it more and more and I thought okay Ultimately, it would be really fun. I just have to find a way that it won't make me anxious. So I'm currently working on that. I'm hoping to find a company that will handle everything so that I don't have to. 
so that I don't have to be stressed at all, so that I don't have to entertain or worry about, you know, anything. And once I figure that out, we're going to do this. We're going to do this thing. We are. Not least because when I posted this this notion on Instagram, I had like 300 people interested. <laughs> so I think it's time. So stay tuned. Very early stages. It's literally at this point, it's just me being like, okay, I can do this if I figure it out right. And now we got to figure it out right. So stay tuned. But I do, I want to make this work. All right. And my last question, my last question, really important. I saved it for last. It's vital. I think it's absolutely vital. It is from Ari, who says, what is your favorite dinosaur and which god or goddess would they represent? Great question. I don't have good reasoning for why my immediate answer is a Tyrannosaurus Rex and Eros, but I'm going to go with it. I got no reasons. King Lizard King and Eros. <laughs> I don't know why. Thank you. That was great. Fucking love dinosaurs, though. Jurassic Park for life. Just, it's great stuff. Dinosaurs are super cool. my dear listeners thank you all so much for listening for sending in your questions and your comments and your messages that may or may not have made me almost cry again um it all really means the world to me i forget how much i love these purely because i feel real validation in what i'm doing and that it's really worth it and that i'm helping but i'm just like making a difference and that you guys all really take something lovely away from it it really made me feel so good um to read these and to share them all with you and just to get them generally it's really nice and i don't know what else to say because i have trouble being sincere well not trouble being sincere i have trouble uh being vulnerable i have a lot of trouble being vulnerable and that's how this feels right now. So I'm just going to wrap up again by saying thank you enormously. Truly, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the show, whether it's been a month or six years or whatever in between. Thank you. It helps me so much. Listening helps so much. If you review me on Apple Podcasts, you're a game changer. I fucking love you. It all just thank you. 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 Um, thank you. Echaristopoli. I am Liv and oh my god I love this shit so much and I love all of you and I love my job and I love everything thank you okay bye BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the US economy in 2022 Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.